return. We're going to look at how he might find us and explore that. How might he find us when he returns? And then three, we should prepare to celebrate. So the master will return, how he might find us, and we should prepare to celebrate. So let's take a look at this right here. Verse 12, it says, And he said, Therefore a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And so what we have to look at is that the master will return. We have to look at this purpose here um, that Jesus Christ, when we think about what he came to accomplish, we would say that that's the gospel. But I want to ask you real quick, what do you think the gospel is? When you think of the gospel, um, there's probably a number of different answers that you would give. And I think that most of us would say that the gospel is forgiveness of sin or it's eternal life um, or, or it's something like that, right? But here's what we have to recognize is that just as the message is clear in the book of Hebrews that God spoke to our forefathers in many times in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. All right, so this is an interesting thing going on there. The gospel starts with Jesus Christ coming, But not just there, but it's because God has ordained that. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent, or he gave his only begotten son. So that was before, but then there's an event in time which we call the incarnation. And when Jesus, God incarnate, shows up, that's part of the gospel. But he didn't just show up, he came to accomplish something. And so what he had to do was he had to live a perfect life. And in living that perfect life, he satisfied the requirements of the law. He did what you and I could never do, all right? So there is no uh, Jesus dying on the cross for anyone else's sins if he had sinned himself. that's, That's a problem. So he lived a sinless life, but it didn't stop there. Then the next step was that, that that was the active obedience. The passive obedience is where he went to the cross and where he stood silent before his accusers so that he might not stand silent in front of our accuser in the last days. So Jesus Christ gave up his life willingly as the suffering servant. That's the the big part where we usually start talking about the gospel. Yeah, Jesus died for our sins. But you can't leave behind all that stuff before it because that's the gospel too. That's good news. That God would love the world, send his son, that Christ would come, Christ would live the perfect life, then die for us. There's five things. Ready for the sixth? The resurrection. You can't have the death without the resurrection and call it the gospel. If the resurrection is the end of, I mean, if the if the death is the end of the story, there's no resurrection. That's bad news. But you got the resurrection. That's six, right? Six points to the gospel here. I didn't mean to do this, but here we are. Six. What else happened? Seven. There's an ascension. All right. So Christ is currently reigning. If you miss that, you're missing part of the gospel. Eight. He's returning. That's important. I didn't mean to outline eight things, but there's eight things right there that we can think of that are part of the gospel, and you can't take away any one of those. So with that in mind, eight, he's returning. We have to live as if it's true. We have to live as if he actually is returning. And that's what I want to unpack this morning is this idea that Jesus Christ is this nobleman who went far away into a country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returns. Now, I know that Jesus had another thing in mind as well when he's communicating to these people, that he's communicating in part real history. 
but the parable has a deeper meaning, and he's telling them this is something that's going to happen as well. And I believe he's referring to himself that he's going re- to go somewhere, and during the time when he's in the ascension, when he's with the Father, before he returns, there's work for you and I to do. And so he gives this parable about uh, how these, these, these individuals work. He says, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Okay, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. All right, so he's giving them a job to do until he returns. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him and might know what they had gained by doing business. Okay, remember this, that Christ is, is, is literally talking to these people, answering a question, all right? Because if you look back, uh, they actually said in 11, it says, as they heard these things, he told a parable. Why? Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, get that. This parable is in response to the assumption that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus says, no, it's not going to be immediate, but there is going to be something that's going to happen. That is, while I'm away, I expect you to do some work because I will come back, and when I come back, you're going to have to give an account. All right, so he's clarifying this this misconception that the kingdom will be established immediately. So that's part of literally what Christ is unpacking for them. But what he says, you say here, see right here, 14, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation. All right, that's interesting. But 15, when he returned... Having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And then it goes into 16 and actually starts to unpack what what actually happened there. But what I think we need to look at to further unpack this idea is that our master will return. And if we are expecting our master to return, if we are the servants who are expecting our master to return, it's going to influence the way in which we work whether we are going to expect celebration upon his return or should we fear his return. Because just think of you, if you've done a good job at work and your boss hasn't seen it yet, what do you want to happen? You want them to come back and look at the good job you did, right? If you're a child and you've done some good thing, what do you want? You want your parents to come look at the good thing you've done. If you've done a bad thing, or you haven't done what you were supposed to do at work, what do you not want? You don't want the boss to come back and see that you haven't done what you were supposed to do. If you're a child, you hide, right? If you're an adult, you call in sick so you can come up with a plan or fix some things, right? We do these things. It's a crazy world out there. I work in HR and I hear some funny things um, of why people can't come to work. but I, I can't talk about too many of them, but there was actually a story this week of this individual who uh, showed up, didn't show up for work for three days, and after three days, that's a no-call, no-show of job abandonment. Well, he came back and said that he was arrested. So we said, no problem, give us the records. Give us, you know, give us some documentation that you got arrested. Well, I can't. Why? Because the police wrongfully arrested me. They, they, they 
assumed I was somebody else. They assumed I was this murderer or drug dealer because I have the same name as this person. So they don't want to release that to the press that they arrested the wrong person. That's why I don't have a paper trail for why I was missing. <laughs> Interesting, right? <laughs> Interesting stuff. We do creative things, don't we, to get ourselves out of trouble. But this is real stuff. I mean, real, I mean, real stuff people come up with. But literally put yourself in the, in, in the shoes. The master is returning. He's expecting something. And we have obligation to live a certain way as if he is coming back. But here's what I believe is sometimes that we actually, in our day-to-day lives, live as if Christ is never coming back. You know, in their time, during this time when the parable was given, they were thinking he's coming back right now. Like, the, like it's all going to be done right now. And the Apostle Paul, you know, he, he speaks as if any minute now, right? So the early church really expected the return of Christ to be immediate. But Jesus said, no, look, it's not exactly like that. But there is something that you need to know. I will come back. And when I come back, I'm going to ask some questions. So what we have to look at is today is whether or not we are living as if we truly believe Christ is coming back. Or are we living as if we believe he's never coming back? Because he's waited so long. Maybe he's not coming back. The boss has been away for so long. Maybe he's never coming back. And we have to live in a way that looks like we believe that Christ will return. And when he returns, Christ must return and find us living as if we believed he would come back. Which I want to go into our next stop. How might he find us? And I want to put a couple of things on the screen for us because I think this is a way in which um, when we start to imagine some of the ways in which Christ might return to find us, living as if we believed he would never come back, here's some things I think he might find us doing or the ways in which he might find us living as if he would never come back. One, living in presumptuous sin. Psalm 19 talks about this, and it's a psalm of David, and he says, he talks about um, that he would be delivered from his secret sins or the hidden sins, the sins that he wasn't even aware of. But then he also says, keep me from presumptuous sins so that they may not have dominion over me. Do you know what a presumptuous sin is? A presumptuous sin is presuming upon the grace of God. It's the, I know this is wrong, and I'm going to do it anyways. And sometimes we mingle the hope of forgiveness with the justification for our sin right now. And any time you do that, be aware of great perversion in your theology. If in any part your justification for committing sin now is God's great mercy, you are committing a presumptuous sin. You're presuming upon the grace of God. David clearly had an idea of what that would look like. And he clearly wanted God to deliver him from that. And that's got to be part of our prayer as well. Because if you are living in presumptuous sin, you are living as if Christ is never going to come back. Because would you do that if he was going to come back any minute? We have to ask ourselves that. So what can we start to unpack under the category of presumptuous sin? I think one is forsaking the assembly. I think that many who call themselves believers are living in presumptuous sin by forsaking the assembly, by not being a part of the body of Christ, by not participating in weekly worship. You might think, man, who are you to make that a sin? It is. Paul says, do not, like some have, gotten into the habit of forsaking the assembly of believers. 
actually, I believe, and here, here we are, you know, this is tough to talk about. I believe that we ought to exercise church discipline for those who forsake the assembly of the believers. Now, that may make you uncomfortable, but I think it would be right for you and me if, if here I am, if I had the say in exactly what this looked like, I would, I would say, you know what you need to do is if someone is not coming to church and they profess to be believers, you and I ought to be calling them and saying, repent of your sin. Get back here. We need you. You need us. You've got to struggle through what that looks like. And I'm not saying that every congregation can perfectly handle church discipline. I think there's maturity that has to come with that. There's got to be grace and love. But I believe that one of the ways that we can live as if Christ is never coming back is to forsake the assembly, to forsake his church, to forsake meeting together with other believers to worship God. In other ways that we can live in presumptuous sin is gratifying the desires of the flesh. And we know what the desires of the flesh, we see those in Galatians, uh, it literally says, he says, but I say to you, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the desires of the flesh are clearly evident, and he goes through a list of them. Sexual immorality, all these other things, right? But then he flips it and says, but if you walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. As like my daughter used to say, uh, is chillness and self-control, right? <laughs> you've you've got to live by the fruit of the Spirit. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is an antidote to the walking according to the flesh. Every one of the fruit of the Spirit directly answers the works of the flesh. So when we're living in presumptuous sin, we are gratifying the desires of the flesh. When Christ comes back, do you want him finding you forsaking the assembly, and do you want him finding you gratifying the desires of the flesh? And you know what? I believe that two impacts one. When you're living, when I'm living in open, unrepentant sin, gratifying the desires of the flesh, you know what I don't want to do? I don't want to be around you. I don't want to be around other believers who might hold me accountable. I don't want to be around the word. I don't want to read this. I'm going to literally say, God, I don't want to. I'm a, uh, nope. So I believe that those two go together. And if you are on the verge of forsaking the assembly, I would ask you, are you also living in presumptuous sin in ways that look a lot like gratifying the desires of the flesh? Because you know what? When we're walking by the Spirit, we want to be with the body. We want to we love one another. We want to worship God together. And it's our sins that lead us away from that. And I know that's heavy-duty stuff. Take a deep breath. Let's keep going. I believe also he might find us lukewarm and living in a comfort and consumer-driven Christianity. And I know you're like, Rob, why are you being so mean to us today? <laughs> I believe that this is also a way in which we can live as if we believe Christ is never coming back, is when we start to make church about you and me and our comforts rather than about serving God and loving people even though it cost us something. You've gotta, we've got to wrestle through that are we trying to design a country club for like-minded people to get together and celebrate this little thing that only pertains to us, and therefore we want all of it to be about us and our preferences? And I believe that the church ought to be comprised of great diversity focused on one central unifying theme, the gospel. 
I believe that the church, a local congregation, ought to be comprised of great diversity. Rich people, poor people, educated people, uneducated people, white people, black people, Hispanic people, Chinese people, all great diversity coming together in unity in what? The gospel. The gospel transcends all of those other diversified lines. And we ought to be able to then come together and say, if there's great diversity in the body, then how can any one member of the body make this about their preferences? If you make it about your preferences, you're forgetting that there's diversity in the body. Well, what does that look like? Well, you know, we've got we've to pay attention to that. Culture is within our church, and the culture is something that the majority is blind to. So be careful when we start to look at this and we start to make it a lukewarm event where we come to participate in comfort and consumer-driven Christianity, living as if the church is for our entertainment and comfort rather than a place for equipping, discipling, sending the saints out to the fields to do both gardening and harvesting work. Because when you are living in a consumer uh, Christianity, you are not going to be driving towards disciple-making, which looks a lot like gardening and harvesting to equip the saints to do the work of ministry so that the body might build itself up in maturity and in love. We, said, we read that. Every one of us should have read that in Sunday school this morning in, in Ephesians 4, that God has given the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the pastors, and the teachers all for the equipping of the saints to do the work of ministry. There's a purpose. What's that purpose? The work of ministry. And part of that is gardening and harvesting. And I want to say one thing on that real quick. There's a beautiful image here that I believe when we start to look at this right, that before there, I got this from from Greg Kokel, before there can be a season of harvesting, there has to be a season of gardening. We have kind of derailed in the 21st century, uh, late 20th century, 21st century, where we start to focus almost entirely on harvesting where we don't train people, we don't send people to do gardening. If you put that in the agricultural you know, context, that would be like a farmer who does nothing but show up during harvest time looking for some fruit to catch. You know, like how crazy would that be? That I've done nothing except expect to go out in the field to find fruit. To, to go out in the field and find vegetables and corn and stuff grown and nice rows ready for me to pluck it. Without the work of gardening first? And we have to remember that there is one field, two seasons, two workers. One field. That is the lost. It's the world that we are to evangelize, that we are to preach to. Jesus Christ said that that's, there's, there, here's the field. It's ripe for harvest. Two seasons. There is a harvesting time, but there's also a time to sow. There's a time to plant. So as a church, if we are not going to live in this comfort-driven Christianity, we've got to be focusing on how we are doing gardening and harvesting because when we think about what we're supposed to do when Jesus is away, I think that's part of what we're supposed to do. When you say, Rob, give me something practical. How, what, well, what should I do while Jesus is away? Be about gardening and harvesting. It pleases God that we are about his work of increasing his kingdom even here. How do you increase his kingdom? By seeing conversions. How do you see conversions? Through preaching. How do you preach? Equip and send. 
Romans 10 gives you that list. How can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches? How can someone preach unless they're sent? So how beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel? That's the work we're supposed to be doing. Not sitting in here and making sure that we are completely comfortable. The other is being completely idle. Christ may come back and find us completely idle, having done nothing with what he's given us. That is one of the ways that we could be found. And I think that there's an interesting thing that here, there's a relationship, and I don't have it on the screen, but you can write it down, that there's a trust, test, more trust relationship. Okay, because what Christ is talking about is someone who's trusted with something, then there's a going away and a testing. What are you gonna do with that trust? And then when he comes back, there is more trust given. Okay, let me, let me, let me get back into the text here. 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. 16, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mena has made 10 menas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Do you see that? It was trust, test, more trust. He was given more. Why? Because he was faithful in the small things, which we said two weeks ago, the small things are the best test of character. How you are doing with the small things God has given you is a very good indication of what you will likely do with great things if he were to give, you to, give them to you. So there's a trust, test, more trust relationship here. And when we think about trust, I, I, I just you know a quick little thing I wrote down was trust is doing right even outside of sight. Right? Are you doing what's right even when you aren't directly managed or controlled? And I think about this with even my own children. You know, I think of, think of I'm going to trust you with this. I don't know if you've ever um, uh, let a child stay at home for the first time, but there's some trust in that, right? I'm not going to be here. Hopefully things go well, and when I come home, things are all right, right? There's trust in that. All right, and there's other times where it's like, you know what, I'm going to let you do a sleepover at someone else's house. There's trust there because I don't know what you're going to be getting into. Or maybe your first uh, child gets, you know, their, your child gets a car and they, they drive her the first time. There's trust in that. I'm going to give you this death machine and I'm going to have you hurl it down the road at 70 miles an hour with other death machines. And here's a cell phone. Good luck. We are not going to have any cell phones in the house when our kids start driving. I mean, we're just, you know, I can do it, but they can't, right? I know you believe the same thing about yourself. So whenever they're probably 15, I'll start getting better practices in order so that I can practice what I preach. But that's a whole other conversation. Because Instagram ain't going to check itself, right? But I digress. Trust is doing the right thing out of sight and outside of direct control. Christ is trusting us even when he's not here. Now, there's a little bit of a theological thing we've got to unpack there. He says he will be with us to the end of the age. He is here, but he's coming back in a very specific way. So don't lose that. He is here. So that actually will go into what I want to unpack in our final stop, at our final six minutes, if you can hang with me here. How should we prepare to celebrate? Um, I really think that this is a, can be summarized in one major point 
to serve God faithfully until Christ returns, all right? So I've been unpacking this, that a servant expecting the master return works so as to celebrate rather than fear his return. I want us to think through this. How can we serve God faithfully until Christ returns? Well, here are some ways that I think we should prepare to celebrate. One is this, this thought, well done, good servant. I think we should consider what the Lord has given us and how we can use what he's given us to make his time of return a time of celebration rather than a time of fear. And here's a couple of practical examples I think um, would be in order uh, for us to recognize as we prepare to celebrate the return of Christ. First, expect to give an account. Expect it. Expect to give an account. And here's a practical thing that I've been practicing lately, and I want to tell you about it is when you wake up, remember this, for today I will give an account. That's literally a practical thing I want you to do. Each morning you wake up, literally tell yourself, for today I will give an account. That is a practical way that you can live as if you're expecting to give an account of your life. I pray that that's something we're always thinking about, but that's a, that's a quick thing. You know, it's really easy to quick wake up, grab our phones, look at what's going on in the world, before you do that, I'm going to challenge you, and I'm challenging myself. Before you do that, before you get tuned into what's going on in the rest of the world, you and the Lord should talk, and you should say, God, I give an account for today. I will give an account today. How can I live today as if, at the end of the day, I can look back and give an account that I think we should celebrate, that we can celebrate? If we do that, I really believe it will change our lives. If we do that, I really believe it will change our church. So I'm going to challenge us to do that, and I'm going to walk that road with you. How can I serve you today, Jesus? That literally should be the question of our heart. And then then a second thing that we should do that's practical here is think of his return often. Think of his return often. Practicing his presence now. Practice the presence of Christ now. He is with you now. But think of his return often. It'll help you stop living as if he will never return. Three, live without regret. You think, well, that's a big one. <laughs> okay, live without regret. Great, thanks. I think that there is a way in which when we actually anticipate to live without regret, that we actually can live without regret. All right? I, I, I'm, I'm sure you can relate to this. I certainly do. But there are things in my life that I wish I had never done. I'm sure every one of us can think of something that we're like, oh, man. I wish I could go back and change that. And you regret. You regret it. But there is a way that you can say, from here on, Lord, I want to live without regret. Part of that is thinking of his return often. Part of that is actually expecting to give an account. When we live that way, it helps us keep from living with regret. So one of my heroes is Jonathan Edwards, and he led a life focused on bringing glory to God. And I'm not saying that you guys have to agree with him on all of his theology or any of that, but when you look at the line of saints and I look down, I'm like, this is one of those people I want to be like. This person literally said, I want to serve you, God, and I want to do. He literally, one of his resolutions was resolved to do that which brings God the most glory. Resolved to do that which brings God the most glory. That's a hard life to live. When you literally say, Here's two good options. Which one brings God the most glory? That's tough. 
But he had a couple of other resolutions. He actually had 70 of them, <laughs> and he wrote these before he was 20, which, yeah, what are we doing with our lives? But he said, 19, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trumpet. Literally says, I don't want to do anything that I wouldn't do if I knew there was less than an hour before Christ came back. Think about that. Next time you're tempted to do something that you know is wrong, literally say, would I do this if I knew for sure that in less than 60 minutes from now, Christ will come back? I bet you, if you really believe that, you could hold it together. Now, it's, it's really hard. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you can live that perfectly, but if you knew, follow, if you knew for certain Christ is coming back in less than an hour, it is 11.50. If Christ came back before one, don't you think that you could hold it together? Like, you, like, like if there's something that you're like, kind of like flirting with, you know, I know this is wrong, but, I, but hey, you know, God's God of forgiveness and love. Maybe I'll dabble in this. Maybe I'll watch that thing I'm not supposed to watch. Maybe I'll go do that thing I know I shouldn't be doing. But if you knew he was coming back before one, don't you think you could like get it together and say, that's not how I want to be found when he comes back? That's the kind of thing that we should live our lives in mind if we were to live without regret. And I know that's really hard and that's just a quote on unpacking that in real life is really hard, but we should aim at this. And then the last quote I want to share with you is actually his 52nd resolution. He says, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved, that I will live just as I can, think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. So translating that from 1700s language to today, he's saying, if you make it to old age, live as if you would once you got to old age, you don't look back and say, I would do it differently. How should I live today that enables me to get over here and look back and say, yep, I did what I wanted to do. I did, I lived the life that I wanted to live. Instead of just going haphazard through the motions and get at the end and look back and say, whew, what was I even doing? But you are actually intentional with your life. And I believe that a servant expecting the master to return works so as to celebrate rather than fear his return. And if we are going to do that, saints, I think we need to expect to give an account, think of his return often, and then live without regret. And one of the practical things that I think we can think of is Jesus Christ himself. Do you know his short ministry was only three years? How old was he when he died? 33. What did he do before then? You know, for at least two decades or around two decades, his focus was on providing for his family. And he was well uh, uh, acquainted with the carpenter's shop in Nazareth as a primary breadwinner for his family. Literally, Jesus Christ had to carry about mundane, everyday tasks himself. And so sometimes our path can look pretty generic. And for the majority of Christ's life, his faithfulness looked pretty generic. Then you got three sparkling years of public ministry where things started to go very differently, right? But even Christ himself 
had a very large part of his life where faithfulness was a day-to-day grind. Show up to the carpenter shop, do this job, do that, do this. And it's an interesting thing to look at, that Jesus Christ, when it says that we have someone who can relate to us, we really, really do. Jesus Christ was absolutely a man and lived this life. He walked this road. So when we practice his presence, literally we can call on him for help and say, Jesus, you know what it's like to get up and go to work. Like literally Jesus knows what it's like to get up and go to work. Don't forget that. He knows what it's like to be faithful. He knows what it's like to be tempted, yet without sin. So I want to encourage you to live as if Christ is going to return, yet until he returns, live as if he's present with you now. Let's stand and we'll close. Man. God, you are so, so good. You've given us a challenge in the words of Christ in the parables. And specifically this morning, this parable that seems rather insignificant and, and seldom talked about, is so challenging to us to live as if Jesus Christ is coming back. So Father, I pray for this congregation, I pray for these people here, these saints that you have called, that we will remember the truth of the gospel includes the return of Christ. And when we live our lives expecting to give an account, waking up every day asking how we might make the most of today in your service. And for those who are in the room who are not yet believers, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, I pray that the second person of the Trinity, the Son, his work will be good news to them. And that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, will work in their hearts to bring about salvation. And Father, may we, as the body of Christ, be active in proclaiming the gospel, be active in doing the work to increase your kingdom here through gardening and harvesting so that others may benefit from the mercy we've benefited from. In Jesus' name. Let's continue.